Open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. When I think of this pastor in Sudan and of our friend who is ministering in really many of these embattled areas, um, I really am reminded of how good we have it. Now, that doesn't mean you are not suffering. That doesn't mean that your trouble is not real trouble. It's just, it's just different than what they are going through. And as you can see, we have these men that we're going to be looking at today. And I want you to try to put yourself into the story. So let's start reading in, can we switch this to my uh, presentation? Good, thank you. Let's start reading, look at 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 12. Wherefore, obviously, the Apostle Peter is writing this, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. So, again, like we do here, we're just going to repeat some of the same things often. I'm not going to be negligent, though you've heard it before. You need to hear it again, and you will hear some new things today, I believe. Verse 13, yea, I think it meet, so that's acceptable or right, as long as I am in this tabernacle, what's he talking about? In his body. He's still alive. To stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Remember what Jesus told him when you're old? Carry you. Jesus had told Peter. Remember, Peter went. To, Peter always asked the question that we would ask, but don't have the courage to ask it. He, he looked at John. What about him? What's going to happen with him? And what did Jesus say? What is that to you? And then he told Peter what was going to happen to Peter. So, verse sixteen. For we have again. He, he's he's trying to tell them, I'm not going to be here much longer. Let's reestablish some things. Verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What does that mean? Jesus was transfigured. They saw him in as much glory as they could see him with or in without dying. So they saw his majesty. Can you imagine what that was like? I I promise you, Steven Spielberg could not reproduce it, right? Patrick could not find the evidence of this if he was looking for it. If you weren't at the fall kickoff, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. All right. So what's he talking about? Mount Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus Christ, he was there. Peter, James, and John were with him. Jesus was transfigured before them. And Moses and Elijah appeared there and talked with Jesus about Jesus Christ's coming death. And they got to witness it. Honestly, how many of you would have loved to have been there to see that? Unbelievable. 
But look at what the Bible says. Verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than what? Than the audible voice of God. They saw Jesus transfigured. They saw Moses and Elijah. They heard the voice of God from heaven. They saw the Son of God transfigured before them. But what did he say? We have something more sure than that. We have something better. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false prophets among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that should live, that should, that after should live ungodly. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of, the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the same day, spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Do you see how that there's not been a period yet? which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness. Those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, 
they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again. And the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Lord, please help us as we look at some of these things today. Lord, help us understand how blessed we are and really what an accountability we have before you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've read some amazing verses today. And it begins with Peter saying, look, I'm not going to be alive much longer. But I want to remind you of some things. Yes, I saw the Lord. I, I, I touched the Lord. I was with him. I saw him transfigured. I heard the audible voice of God from the heavens. But we have something that's better, something that is more sure than that. But there are people who are trying to undermine that truth. And they are going to make you in bondage to false doctrine. The only way that we can know the truth is if we truly understand the source of our truth. And that is the word of God. So you might be wondering, Pastor, why do we have these things up here? Just this past year, the Lord really put it on my heart to, and you guys know I'm not mystical, right? You all know that. When I put out my Bible exhibit for the first time, on a Wednesday night, and Jeff Blackford came to me and said, now all those words you've been saying for all of these years, I understand them now. There's a passage of Scripture, it's in the book of Lamentations, and there's a statement in this verse that really defines why we're doing the exhibit, the display, and taking this around the country. And it's this, mine eye hath affected my heart. Mine eye hath affected my heart. When you can see something, when you can touch something, when you can handle it, it just becomes more real. It's hard for us sometimes to imagine things and to picture them. And when you can see them, it changes everything. This, or today, or later on tonight, I'm going to head, I'll be flying out to Los Angeles. I'm going to the Spiritual Leadership Conference there. There's a big controversy right now among fundamental Baptist preachers. And there are some trying to lead our young preachers away from believing that the King James Bible is the preserved word of God in English. It's a big problem. Some guys who had taught at West Coast Baptist College have taken that influence and are using it to move people away from the King James Bible. Guys like Kerry Schmidt, guys like Kurt Skelly, guys like Brian Sams. What they're doing is they are taking a platform that was not theirs. Paul Chapel gave them their, their notoriety. And they're using that to try to persuade young men that the King James Bible issue is silly, that we don't need to worry about it. And so, the one of the themes of the Spiritual Leadership Conference, there's a doctrinal path that you can go through. They have all these different breakout sessions. So I want to go out, and I want to see the guys that they're bringing in to defend the truth. I, I want to know what's being said. 
because there are some reasons these things can be taught. And I've had long conversations with Brother Chapel about it, and, and I'm praying that, that that'll... Can you tell I'm trying to be diplomatic here? I'm, I'm praying that the, some of the truth will start to come out. And so, I have started traveling with my exhibit. These are new. This is part of it. You'll see more as we do some more of these things. I don't want to bore you with it, with everything that I'm doing around the country all the time. Next Sunday after the morning service, remember next Sunday night, we don't have our evening service. We're going to change our schedule a little bit. Next Sunday after the morning service, I'll take my exhibit out to the Certainty Conference at First Baptist in New Philadelphia. We'll set it up. And um, These are guys that love the King James Bible, but there's a whole lot of the subject that is not taught. And so I'm trying to have an influence and do that. I'm thankful that Matt Holsclaw and, and Paul Schrader, families are going to be out there, help me set it all up. It's a, it's a massive job hauling this thing around and setting it up and teaching it. But I want you to see some of what we're doing and why. It's not just that I love history, but I do love history. The Bible in Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. When I was in fourth grade living in West Hartford, Connecticut, and I'd walk by a spot that said George Washington camped here, I'd stop and read the plaque and learn about it. I've loved history all of my life. When I was in fifth grade, I was went to see my grandmother in Florida, and I was telling her about a book I was reading about Thomas Jefferson. And when I was in sixth grade, I took my book by William Jennings Bryan and took it to my sixth grade teacher and debated with her about evolution. You can, you, I'm sure you know that that went really well. And it's just, I've always been interested in history and in defending the truth and all of those things. And even though I fought the call to preach until I was 30 years old, didn't go back to Bible college to become a preacher until I was 30. That's old, right? Yeah. Trust me, that's old. Justin Yo told me he's almost 38 years old. Can you believe that? Doesn't he look older? But anyway, all that time, God was preparing me to do something in his work, and it's exciting to be able to do it. And you all, with your giving and your help, this is, this is the result of what you guys allow me to do, the library you've allowed me to acquire, all of these things. But it's more than just collecting books. It's more than just making pretty documents. It's, it's, it's more than that. Again, Lamentations, mine eye hath affected my heart. I want you to be able to see some things. So what I want to do this morning, I want to talk about the holy men that God used. I want you to see that God gave us the Bible. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Don't forget our four words. Inspiration, that's God giving his words to the mind of man. And then inscripturation, that's having those words written down. Preservation, that's keeping those words free from corruption. And then translation, having those words translated into a language, if that language has enough words to communicate the truth of the Bible. That's, that's the foundation for what we're teaching. But how did we get our Bible, and why is it better than the other, even vernacular translations? What is different about ours? That's what this story will tell us. So, let's just dive in. I want you to see something. Hopefully you can see some of that. So, this is our timeline. So about 1491 B.C., Moses receives the, the, the Ten Commandments from God. That's God, with his finger, wrote the law in tablets of stone. That's the beginning of the Word of God. You say, wait a minute, does God have a finger? Well, God's a spirit. So how did he do this? 
I don't know. But that's the way the Bible describes it. And he gives us the law, and we, we jump forward. There's a whole lot that happened with Judaism, but we're talking about the Bible. So we jump forward to the apostolic churches from 33 until 150 A.D. Those apostolic churches, this is the early church. Sometimes people ask, who were the Baptists in the early church? Everyone. Because we are continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Church doctrine is defined by the New Testament. We get what we believe, not from what other people have done, but from what the Bible tells us to do. And so the Bible is our sole authority. We believe in the autonomy of the local church. There's no outside organization outside of the church. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. There's not the office of the priest. Every believer is a priest because we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We believe that there are two offices in the church, the pastor and the deacon, and the job of the pastor is to teach, lead the church, and the job of the deacon is to help the pastor to serve the people. There's two offices, and then there is the individual soul liberty that you can't force anyone to believe anything. Amen? And then the S is a saved church membership. You can't be a member with of Grace Baptist Church without making a profession of faith. And that's demonstrated in the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that baptism follows a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and the Lord's Supper follows that. You take the Lord's Supper after you're saved and baptized, and then the S is the separation of church and state. Because what what we believe about the priesthood of the believer and individual soul liberty, a government cannot mandate what you believe. Can't do it. That's, That's who we are, and where did we get all of that? From the New Testament, from the writings, from, from the, the faith and practice of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, and the statements and writings of Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. That's where we get our practice. That's what the apostolic churches were doing, and we are continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. There was an early group called the Novations. They're called Novations based on a guy named Novatus. And what they were trying to do was keep the church pure from corruption. There's another group called the Paterines in 250, another group called the Donatists, then the Cathari, the Paulicians. You can see these people that are moving ahead. The Albigensians around 1,000, the Waldensians around 1,200, the Lollards around 1,300. We're going to talk some more about the Lollards as we go through this morning. But who were these people? We mentioned in Sunday school that There are some, even among independent Baptists, even among King James Bible-believing people, that they have a desire to criticize these groups of people, say the Donatists or the Cathari or the Paulicians, because they may have had some doctrinal error. And let me just promise you, they did have some doctrinal error, and so do you. How many of you have a Bible? How many of you have a Bible, but you still find sometimes that you're wrong? Now imagine you didn't have a complete Bible. You're running for your life. And yet someone's going to argue with you about a fine point of doctrine who's sitting in a padded chair in air conditioning with a computer and a Bible. I want to say bad words right now. That kind of thinking, I don't understand it. We're not saying they were completely doctrinally pure. What we're saying is they were right in their church doctrine. That's what we're saying. They believed that salvation had to precede baptism. They believed in the autonomy of the local church. They believed that it was wrong to confess your sin to a priest. That's what they believed. 
when we say that they are that they are in our line as Baptists, we're not talking about eternal security. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about what is a church, what is proper church practice, and has that proper church practice existed in history, or was it lost from 100 A.D. until 1517 with the Protestant Reformation? That's the question. What's the answer? Well, God has always had a people. The Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What is the church? It's a called-out assembly of born-again, baptized believers meeting in a specific location for the purpose of carrying out the Great Commission, expounding the Scriptures, fellowship, observing and defending the ordinances. That's what a church is. That has existed ever since Christ and the apostles started it, or the Bible is not true. Are you with me? And it's also been corrupted from the very beginning. And because evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse, that corruption will be seen throughout the ages, but there will also be always be people standing for the truth, fighting against that error. All right, so you have above the line, these are the Baptists and what's been going on. Then around that line, you start to see these timelines. Look at 400 AD. That's when Jerome produced the Latin Vulgate. What was the Latin Vulgate? The first translation of the Bible. So the Bible was in the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew. The Bible in the New Testament was written in Greek. There are a few chapters in the Old Testament that are written in a language called Aramaic. Around 150 AD, the Bible was translated into Old Latin. Around 157, it was translated into Syrian or Syriac. So in the western part of the world, they used the Latin. In the eastern part of the world, they used the Syrian. And in other places, they used some of the Greek. So the Byzantine Empire. Around Constantinople, that area, Istanbul today. So those languages were all used. So the Bible being translated into Old Latin, there were good Old Latin copies and there were bad Old Latin copies. And so the copies that didn't agree with Roman Catholic doctrine, there was a pope named Damasus who in 400 AD asked Jerome to correct the Old Latin and make it agree with those corrupted Latin manuscripts that came out of Africa. And so that's what Jerome did. Now, fast forward. We have to fast forward to the history of our Bible. We're going to fast forward all the way to 1380. Do you see that up there? And what we have there is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was born somewhere around 1328. He died in 1384. He's known as the morning star of the Reformation. So what I have up here on the screen is what is printed here on these banners. So he's known as the morning star of the Reformation because the Reformation began with the translation of the Bible that was associated with Wycliffe. Now, here's what's wild. I didn't know this. Wycliffe probably didn't make the translation. His people did. I, I didn't know that. And what's amazing about this translation is what it did. Now, here, let me do it this way. If I don't do this properly in the right order, we'll never get through. His followers, the Lollards, translated the Bible into Middle English from the Latin Vulgate. Now, you could not read a Wycliffe Bible, all right? The, the language is just different. You would recognize a few words, but the language, it was Middle English. It's not modern English. But his followers, the Lollards, translated it, and this changed everything. But there's something to remember. Please don't miss this. A Wycliffe Bible... Well, let me just ask you this question. How many of you could afford $80,000 for a book? I'm watching because I need help with my display. Let me see. 
That's how much a Bible, in today's money, that's how much a Wycliffe Bible would have cost you. It took almost a year to produce one because they were hand copied. So an entire community would buy one Bible and they would pay people to stand and read it and people would stand in line to hear the Bible in their own language for the first time. All right, so the followers of Wycliffe were called the Lollards. There were some other followers, like a man named John Huss. I had that in the timeline. But these, the followers, they translated the Bible into Latin, or into English from the Latin, into Middle English from the Latin. Um, this translation was very expensive because it had to be copied by hand, and printing was not invented until 100 years later. This is 100 years before the printing press. This, here's the part that I want you to get. Please don't miss this. It was said by a Catholic writer of the time, quote, one could scarcely see two men on the road, but that one was a Wycliffeite or a Wycliffeite. That's the influence the Lollards had. They influenced half of the British Isles for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what they were fighting against were the corruptions of Rome. They didn't believe in the Catholic priesthood. They didn't believe in transubstantiation. They didn't believe in the authority of the Pope. And so, of course, they were persecuted and went through horrible persecution. And one day I'll tell you the story of the Lollards. But listen to what John Wycliffe said. He said, I am ready to defend my convictions even unto the death. About 15 years after his death, was it 15 years? They had the Council of Constance. At the Council of Constance, he was condemned as a heretic. His bones were dug up and they burned his bones and scattered them in the Swift River. That's how much the Catholic Church hated John Wycliffe because of the influence that his people had. So fast forward over a hundred years and we get to Johannes Gutenberg. He's the inventor of movable type printing. How many of you have heard of the Gutenberg Bible? You've heard of Gutenberg. Imagine never having seen a book in your entire life. Now you understand the front row right here. That's these guys. Imagine if you had never seen a book. And it's interesting today that after all of the work to get books printed and to, to make them popular and to put them in schools and teach people how to read, that now in the public education system, they're diminishing reading. They're trying to move kids into reading technical journals as opposed to good literature. And that'll really make a kid love reading, won't it? It's unbelievable. And the move away from printed books to digital materials to where some kids never actually use books they use an iPad or they use some kind of a computer, which diminishes several things. Number one, you do not learn as well from a screen as you do from a book because it's in a different place on the screen every time that you look at it. You get the sensation of turning the pages and your mind remembers where it is on the page. And you have to discern those things and do it. And it's all intentional to dumb it down. The other thing that'll do is when you can control digital information, at some point, censorship will be much easier. Buy books. Buy books, buy Bibles, hold a Bible in your hand. Now, if you're using an electronic document today, I don't care. There's nothing sinful about using an electronic Bible. Amen? But I'm just telling you there's going to come a time when all of that will be shut off and it will all be controlled and we need print books. And that's what Gutenberg thought. Listen to what happened. The thing about Gutenberg, I don't have time to go into all the details. You wouldn't believe what it took him to create this machine. He printed the world's first mechanically printed book. It was the Gutenberg Bible. It was a Latin Vulgate, Jerome's Latin Vulgate, but a 
1455 edition of it. The Bible Gutenberg printed was the Latin Vulgate. Listen to what he said. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what's happening here. Oh, it's up there, just not on my screen. Religious truth is captive in a small number of little manuscripts which guard the common treasures instead of expanding them. Let us break the seal which binds these holy things. Let us give wings to the truth that it may fly with the word, no longer prepared at vast expense, but multitudes everlastingly by a machine which never wearies to every soul which enters life. Imagine there were no printed books. If you had a Bible, it was a handwritten copy of a manuscript, and those manuscripts were hidden by the Catholic Church. You weren't allowed to see it. This is why it was called the Dark Ages. The Bible says, the entrance of thy word giveth light. What ended the Dark Ages was not the Renaissance. What ended the Dark Ages was not the Reformation. What ended the Dark Ages was the Bible being disseminated around the world, and it opened people's eyes. That's what we're talking about. And Gutenberg is the man that God used to do that, and he died a pauper. So now, look at where we have been. The apostolic churches, we've gone through Jerome and the Latin Vulgate, John Wycliffe, the first Middle English Bible, and then Gutenberg, the first printed Bible in history. What happens next? Well, of course, there's persecution. Desiderius Erasmus in 1516 produces the first Greek New Testament. Here's why this is important, and here's how it happened. There was a man named Lorenzo Valla. And they used Latinized names, so he was called uh, Laurentius. I tell Lawrence Vance, that's what I'm calling him from now on, Laurentius. And um, so Lorenzo Valla had, this is crazy. It's hard for us, again, to get our minds around it. Because of what happened with the Catholic Church's control over the Scriptures, no one was allowed to study the Bible in the original languages. You had to use a Latin Vulgate And the only people who were allowed to interpret the Vulgate were the priests in the church. All right? So when Martin Luther became a priest, he went into this, this seminary. He saw a book chained up. He's already a priest. He said, what's that? They said, that's a Bible. He didn't know what a Bible was. Martin Luther. Okay? So now let's back up a little bit. Desiderius Erasmus, he finds in a library this handwritten manuscript by Lorenzo Valla. And it was Valla's annotations on the Latin Vulgate. He had made 2,000 notes about that Latin Bible that the Catholic Church was using. Here's how he did it. In 1453, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. All right? I'm sorry. The Byzantine Empire collapsed. So Constantine had gone to Constantinople, started Constantinople, and the, the church, the Catholic Church, in the year 1054 had had a schism. It had a schism. Some people call it a schism. They learned that at shul. So there, there, there was this schism. And so you have now, you have the Roman Catholic Church in the West and you have the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East. The Eastern Orthodox Church kept using the same Greek manuscripts they had always been using in Constantinople. They kept using them. And that's the Greek text. Those are the Greek manuscripts that agree with our Bible. So, in 1453, the Ottoman Turks, the Muslims, capture that part of the world, 
and these Eastern Orthodox priests flee into Rome, into the Western part of the empire, bringing their manuscripts with them. Lorenzo Valla goes to Rome and learns Hebrew and Greek from these who had fled the Byzantine Empire. He's the first man in the West to study the Bible in the original languages since the early church, over a thousand years. We wonder why there was darkness there. Because no one knew what the Bible really said. And so, Erasmus is awakened to this idea that the Bible has been changed. And so, he produces his own Latin New Testament, making changes in the text of the Latin. But to demonstrate that he has authority to do that, he did it in two columns. In the right-hand column was Latin. In the left-hand column, he produced a Greek New Testament for the first time in human history. The first printed Greek New Testament. And here's where it changed everything. For the word repent or repentance in your Bible, the Latin Vulgate used do penance. How many of you know there's a big difference between repenting and doing penance? So Vala had pointed that out to Erasmus. Erasmus did not change that in his Vulgate. But by identifying the difference in his text and in his footnotes about the text, Martin Luther read this word, repent. And he started seeing that penance is not the same thing as repentance. And it changed the world. Now, we know Martin Luther didn't go far enough. Uh, I read a great article about, or I have a great article about, I haven't read it all, about Luther called Almost Protestant. He didn't come out quite as far as he should have. But that idea of the just shall live by faith and repentance, it all started because of Desiderius Erasmus. So let's learn a couple of things about Erasmus. He printed the first Greek New Testament in history in 1516. Remember, what year was the Protestant Reformation? 1517. This changed everything. And of course, Erasmus has to be attacked by modern scholars now, it's not modern secular scholars that attack Erasmus. It's modern Christian scholars. Why? Because they want to change your Bible. Here, imagine this. He's considered the last man in the world to read every book in the world. He read every book in the world. Now, they'd only been printing books for about 70 years. But still, monumental task. He was considered the greatest mind in the world. The Bible says not many mighty are chosen, but some are. And what I love about Erasmus, people say, you know he was a Catholic, right? Yeah. He was, a bad, he, was, he was a good enough Catholic for the Pope not to kill him for doing this. And a bad enough Catholic to do it. And he sold all of his books to the Protestants with the agreement that he could use them until he died. And he spent the rest of his life, the end of his life, with Protestants. Did he ever fully come out of the Catholic Church? No, he didn't come out as far as Martin Luther did, but God used him in a great way to do this. He, his Greek text came to be known as the Textus Receptus, the received text. Now, just in case someone's watching this, it's recorded, and they say, it's not the Textus Receptus. It was called that in 1633. I understand where that came from. But his is the base text for what came to be known as the Textus Receptus. All of the other Greek texts that agree with our Bible are just different versions of Erasmus's text. Really important, okay? But he never intended to produce a Greek text. He was just giving an authority for his changes in the Latin. Listen to this. 
The third edition, 1522 of his Greek text, formed the basis for the New Testament of the King James Bible, your Bible. That's why he is so important. And look at what he said. All can be devout, and I shall boldly add, all can be theologians. Do you understand what an indictment this was against the Catholic Church? Because the Catholic Church teaches that only the church is allowed to define doctrine and explain doctrine. He says everybody can. Look at what his desire was. Would that the farmer might sing snatches of Scripture at his plow, and that the weaver might hum phrases of Scripture to the tune of his shuttle, that the traveler might lighten with stories from Scripture the weariness of his journey. What was his desire? To get the Bible into the hands of the people. We have a Bible. Why? Because of these men that God used. The next man is William Tyndale. There's no more important figure in the history of the English Bible than William Tyndale. The first printed English New Testament was produced by William Tyndale in 1526. Now, I want you to think about something. Okay? So here, John Wycliffe. Around 1380, the Wycliffe Bible came out. Went through several revisions by around the the end of the 1300s. It was pretty much completed. But here's the problem. The Wycliffe Bible wasn't printed until 1733. That's 200 years after William Tyndale's Bible was printed. We don't know that William Tyndale ever actually saw a Wycliffe Bible. Your Bible... Anybody have a Bible with them? You have a Bible? About 85% of your New Testament is still the work that William Tyndale did translating the Bible. So many of the common phrases and things that are in the English language, William Tyndale invented. So now, here, I got to get this. So important. Just so you know, William Tyndale invented the English language. How many of you did not know that? He invented English prose. The way that Shakespeare wrote didn't exist until William Tyndale came along. As a matter of fact, many of the phrases in Shakespeare's writings come directly from William Tyndale. He, Really, two men invented English prose. William Tyndale and Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More did it by producing one book. Utopia. What does utopia mean? No place. And he hated William Tyndale. And some of the letters back and forth between Thomas More and William Tyndale are hilarious. They they used very bad words to describe each other. Much of them having to do with excrement and flatulence and unbelievable. But how many of you are glad that's not the basis of English prose, right? They would use that. But, but that's where the English language came from. And then when the Tyndale Bible started to be distributed, now all of a sudden people can have a Bible in their own language. Now, please understand, it's 1526 when he produced the first new, printed New Testament. In 1519 in England, a family of six were burned at the stake. Do you know what they were burned at the stake for? teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Burned at the stake for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. That's what, that's what William Tyndale was dealing with in England. Let's keep going. Tyndale's translation was the basis for several 
revisions, including the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible, culminating in the King James Bible of 1611. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He was then strangled to death and burned at the stake in 1536. He he was burned at the stake for giving you a Bible. Listen to what he said. He was arguing with some priests about putting the Bible in the language of the people. And he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, I will make a boy that driveth the plow no more of the Scripture than thou dost. And he did that. He did that. Understand, you right here, you guys right here, you, you know more Bible than a Catholic priest did when William Tyndale produced that Bible. Why? Because he produced the Bible. Because he translated the Bible into amazing English for us. God used him to do that. Then, Miles Coverdale. Why is Miles Coverdale important? Well, he went and helped William Tyndale finish translating the Bible. William Tyndale was killed. Miles Coverdale finished it. He was a loyal disciple of William Tyndale. And by the way, William Tyndale preached the gospel. He was an evangelist. He led other people to the Lord, and he influenced other great scholars to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1535, he printed the first complete Bible in the English language, the Coverdale Bible. Okay, so this is the... Martin Luther... uh, William Tyndale only finished the New Testament, the Pentateuch, Jonah, and a few of the historical books. Coverdale finished it. So the 1535 Coverdale Bible is the first printed Bible. And are you ready for this? The king that William Tyndale spoke to when he said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes, was Henry VIII. 1536, Tyndale's burned at the stake. 1535, the Coverdale's Bible is produced. Henry VIII authorized the printing of the Coverdale Bible. What did God do? He answered Tyndale's prayer. Now, we know Henry VIII died a madman. He was a very evil man, but he authorized the Bible, and God opened the King of England's eyes about that. It's amazing. Miles, so the most important man in the history of the English Bible is William Tyndale. The next is Miles Coverdale after him. Why? Because after Tyndale, Coverdale is the most important figure in the history of the English Bible. He had a part in the publication of more different editions of uh, the English language Bibles in the 1500s than any other person in history. What Bibles did he work on? He made use of Luther's German text and Latin as additional sources. So when he finished the Old Testament, he didn't speak Hebrew. So he used Martin Luther's translation, another Latin text, to produce the Old Testament. But let's go. He said this, Whosoever believes not the Scripture believes not Christ, and whosoever refuses it refuses God also. If you reject the Bible, you're rejecting Jesus. You're rejecting God. That's Miles Coverdale. But Coverdale, here's why he's so important. Coverdale worked on the Coverdale Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Great Bible, and the Bishop's Bible. Coverdale had a part in all of those. So he is considered the second most important person in this subject. So let's finish with John Rogers. Are you all doing okay? Can we finish? All right. So John Rogers, why is John Rogers important? 
John Rogers was the chaplain at the English house in Antwerp, Belgium. So Tyndale had to leave England as a young man, never got to go home, never saw his friends again because the the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Henry Tunstall, and then Thomas More and others were seeking to kill him. So he went to Germany. He produced his first edition. He had gotten almost, uh, 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 he'd gotten much of it printed, and then someone turned him in, and he had to flee and lost it all. Then he translated the Bible again. He had it almost finished, was getting ready to print it, and it was all lost in a shipwreck. And he had to do all the work again. And so he finally made it to Belgium. He was able to hide in Belgium and do his work. He was staying at the English house. The English house was almost like an embassy. It's where people from England would stay there. And the chaplain was John Rogers. When there was a man named, I think it was Henry Phillips. His last name was Phillips. He betrayed, he came as a spy and betrayed Tyndale. And, and he was, Tyndale was killed because of this Phillips guy. But John Rogers wanted to help Tyndale finish the Bible. So he made sure that Tyndale's copies of the, uh, his text of the Pentateuch was printed. But he not only did that, listen to what John Rogers did. He published the Matthews Bible under the pseudonym of Thomas Matthews in 1537. And it's so fun, I have a facsimile of it that I can show you. Uh, when I was at the Museum of the Bible a month or so ago, they have an actual Matthews Bible And at the end of the Old Testament, they have those fancy woodcuts. You know what a woodcut is? It's kind of a, it's carving in wood that's ink is stamped on and it puts an image. And there are these these two letters, they're in script and it's hard to see what they are. Large letters at the end of this last page. So Old Testament, New Testament starts over here, big woodcut right here, big, big impression of an image. And there are two real flowery looking images there. And it's W.T., William Tyndale, in the Matthews Bible. He called it the Matthews Bible so he wouldn't be martyred. He's a close friend of William Tyndale. After Tyndale was betrayed and executed in 1536, Rogers combined Tyndale's translation of the Old Testament, which was complete through Second Chronicles, with the remaining books from the translation by another English style, Miles Coverdale, and added Tyndale's New Testament. Rogers was the first person burned at the stake when Bloody Mary ascended to the throne of England. Why? She was a Catholic queen. They hate the Bible in the hands of the people. You say, now, if you happen to be a Roman Catholic here today, I'm sorry, this is what happened. When Mary became queen, the first person she killed was Matthew. Why? Because his Bible had become popular. He said, give ear, my children, to my words whom God hath dearly bought. Lay up his laws within your heart and print them in your thoughts. As John Rogers was being taken to be burned, there was a French, a representative from the French court there who wrote an account of it. And he said that John Rogers' family marched with him to the execution as if to a wedding. They knew why their father was dying. And his children had laid up God's word in their hearts. See, folks, what did it take to bring us the Bible? What what did it take? It took men like John Wycliffe running for his life. It took men like Erasmus, amazingly gifted, 
It took men like William Tyndale burned at the stake. It took men like Miles Coverdale running for his life. It took men like John Rogers burned at the stake. That's what it took to bring us our Bible. Why? Satan hates the word of God. And what does he use? We just read all of 2 Peter chapter 2. What is 2 Peter chapter 2? It's people using the words of God to destroy people. But here's the good news. God knows who they are. And their end is worse than their beginning. Amen? So what should we do? We should remember people like the pastor in Sudan. I wish I could tell you his name. When we turn off the live stream, I'd be happy to tell you his name. When we see what he's going through, we need to understand the people that killed Tyndale, they're still around. Different religious name, but they're people that hate God and they hate God's word and they hate God's people. We need to be thankful for the freedom and liberty that we have. And we need to be thankful for the Bible that God has given to us. Amen? Let's finish with this. When we look at this timeline and we look at what has happened in history, Erasmus produces his text. The Swiss Anabaptists from 1525 to 1527. Why do we have it ending at 1527? Because the leaders were George Blaurock and, and Balthazar Hubmeyer and Felix Manns and Conrad Grable. They were all dead by 1527. They'd all been killed either by the Catholics or by the Lutheran Protestants. They'd been drowned, they'd been burned, they'd been beheaded, all because they believed in believer's baptism. They, they were killed for that. And please understand this. So if you look at um, the timeline up there, there's a Baptist church that started in London in 1525. James Bainham is burned at the stake for heresy in 1532. But in between that, there was something called the Diet of Spire. The Diet of Spire, it was a, it was a Catholic assembly in 1529, this is, how many of you have heard the term Protestant? The term Protestant was coined, it, it originated at the Diet of Spire, at this meeting. And look at what they are saying. In 1529, the Diet of Spire decreed that every Anabaptist, so it's an Anabaptist, a rebaptizer, that every Anabaptist or rebaptized person of either sex is to be put to death by fire or by sword or by some other means. That wasn't the only place. So this is Leonard Verdun's book, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren. Spire was, of course, Catholic-controlled. The rigor practiced by the Catholics against the Anabaptists did not, however, exceed that of the Protestants. In 1534, for example, the Protestant city of Strasbourg decreed that no child was to be left unbaptized and that children so left unbaptized would be baptized by the officers of the law. So when we look at this, Henry VIII, he has in 1538 a commission to prosecute the Baptists. John Rogers produces his Bible In 1548, Calvin advises the king, Edward VI, to kill the Anabaptists. Thomas Cromwell produces the Great Bible. Stephanus Greek text is there. The Geneva Bible was not John Calvin. That's been changed in my timeline. But notice, in 1560, Elizabeth writes against the Baptists. Queen Elizabeth. 
John Whitgift, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He writes an entire book against the Baptists in 1572. Matthew Parker produces the Bishop's Bible. And in 1604, the King James authorizes the production of the King James Version based on the 1602 Bishop's Bible. But the last person burned at the stake in 1612 in England under the reign of King James was the Baptist preacher, Edward Whiteman. His grandson, Valentine Whiteman, came to America and started the First Baptist Church in Connecticut. And then between Valentine Whiteman and John Gano Whiteman, Timothy Whiteman, that church is pastored by those three men for 150 years. But it starts with their grandfather or great-grandfather being burned at the stake in England, Litchfield, 1612. See, we need to understand that the history of the Bible and the history of the Baptist goes hand in hand. Some of the people that God used to bring us the Bible would have actually been for the persecution of the Baptists. But God used all of that to bring us the Bible that we hold in our hands. Are you thankful that you have it? It's good for us to think it. I know that we live in an age where it's difficult to follow dates and all of those things. But I hope that this reinforces in you thankfulness for the word of God and for what God has done. Amen? And here's the most important thing. The most important thing is that you're born again. Why does the Bible matter? Because as Peter said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. When, when the apostle Paul defines the gospel that he has received and wherein we stand, he says that it's the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. How that he died according to the Scriptures. and was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Why is the Bible so important? Because the Bible is how we know about God, about who he is. Amen? We need to be thankful for how we got it. Say, Pastor, how does this help me? Man, I'm going through trouble. I've got all kinds of things going on because you can resort to the Scriptures. The Bible is where we find our hope. We have a more sure word of prophecy than any experience that we will ever have. It's the written word of God that's been preserved for us and translated for us. We can hold it, believe it, trust it, teach it, comfort one another. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, isn't it? Wherefore, comfort one another with what? These words. That's our comfort. Lord, we love you. I pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, help us to read it more, to trust it more.